Hello and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking after our long hiatus. <laughs> Today we have two of us here. It's Katie. And Iz. And uh, yeah, we, we know that the world has been a really scary, difficult place lately. So we just hope everybody is well um, and that their family and friends are well. Um, hopefully this next half hour can be a little bit of an escape for you from the world. Um, and today we're going to be talking about body modifications. Mm-hmm. And we hope you can hear us okay. Um, we're both recording from home, so. <laughs> this at-home job today. Usually <laughs> it is, um, we're in the nice, wonderful studio, but we're, uh, we're doing, we're doing a bit of a DIY today, so <laughs> hopefully that works. Mm-hmm. All right, so body modifications. I think a lot of times when people think of body modifications, they think of like ones that are more mainstream in the West, like piercings and tattoos. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, and in 2012, a survey, survey by Ipsos found that about 22% of Canadians have a tattoo. And it was pretty comparable for Americans too. Yeah. Um, so that's like one in five. That's That's a lot more than I think there have been in the past. And I think even more people would have piercings. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, it's culturally expected, for example, that a girl will at least have her earlobes pierced. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people even get their ears pierced as babies. Yeah, definitely. So that's, like, that's just a really normal thing. And, in fact, if you're a girl that doesn't have her ears pierced, it's probably more of an anomaly than of a commonplace thing. Mm -hmm, Definitely. I have seven piercings on my te- on my ears so <laughs> I have I'm one of the few people that has zero really do you have a tattoo or I have nothing, nothing. I do not I cannot do commitment <laughs> <laughs> well I can I can in like a lot of senses but in the sense of like something like in or on my body it, I don't know I just I, I wouldn't be able to decide on anything yeah so. it definitely is a big like you're putting you're putting a hole through your head so yeah it's definitely so, a commitment. <laughs> but I think they look really cool. So they're neat. Um, but yeah, I mean, body modifications can be like a form of like deviance in some ways. Um, like a lot of people, especially older generations, are not uh, not really cool with tattoos and piercings still. Um, even though a lot of younger people are increasingly getting them. So there are different reasons that people can have for modifying their body. Um, one of the big ones is just personal expression um, because, you know, they like the way it looks. They like how it expresses themselves. And that's a really big one, I think, in the West. I think yeah, that's probably, definitely. yeah. Like I'd say that in and around like Canada, that's probably our most common reason for getting yeah, a piercing. It's like a style choice, like a personal fashion style choice. Definitely. Sure. But other places, um, and even places in Canada, it can be a rite of passage or even a group identification. Um, We're going to be talking about some of these. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about some cultural examples of um, body modification that happen in today's world. And then we're going to look a bit into the past. Um, So we're going to be jumping all over different fields of anthropology today from sociocultural to some bioarchaeology we're gonna be we're gonna be doing it all (laughs) so um it's also notable that some of these things that we're going to talk about they're kind of like going out of style with younger people Mm -hmm. so even if they're happening today 
there's almost an opposite effect where in the Western world, a lot of these body modifications are picking up. Whereas um, in other places, they're, they're often, you know, people are making the choice to not undergo traditional body modifications. Mm -hmm. So the first one we're going to talk about is neck stretching. So um, the one place that I've, okay, so this is a really bad example, especially as an anthropologist. But I remember going to Niagara Falls and going to the Ripley's Believe It or Not Auditorium. Have you been there, Is? I have, yeah. Okay, yeah. Do you remember, like, the wax figure of the woman with the stretched neck with all the rings? Yeah, it's all the rings. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. So that's an example of neck stretching. Um, Having it in an auditorium with odd is O-D-D is a little (laughs) bit... um, there's, there's some problems with that, but yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, but this is usually done by the Kayan or Padong people. Um, they're currently located in Thailand, um, and the brass collar rings are worn by women, and they're called Wang. Okay, interesting. So, um, often girls will start before the age of ten, at like four, five, six, seven, and before ten, and they'll start putting these uh, brass rings on. Mm-hmm. And every few years, more coils are added, and they're rarely refitted. So some of the only times that a woman will take them off is during childbirth or a doctor's appointment. Um, so it's actually really weird to, like, be able to, like, see your neck, um, which is weird because, like, we can look in the mirror every day and see our neck. Mm-hmm, but but like, for them, it's always hidden. Yeah. So that's um, – it's different. Um, but it's actually an illusion. So a lot of people think the neck's being stretched, but it's not actually the neck stretching. It's the shoulders and collarbones being pushed down. So um, this can make a neck like about a foot long or look about a foot long. And there are like tens of coils, like 40, 50 coils. And they're really heavy. Um, so often when they are taken off, somebody will feel like really lightheaded. Um, it's actually a myth that I previously believed, because I had heard it, that um, women who wear these rings, when they take them off, they can actually, like, um, die from having them taken off. I I heard that as well. Yeah, and it it sounds like it should be believable, because it sounds like, yeah, that the ring should be supporting your neck, but it's, like, apparently, um, it's it's not really a support. It's more of just, like, a collar-type thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, women in this uh, cultural identity have been persecuted for wearing these rings. Um, and I've actually, in researching this, a lot of the things I came across um, were like westernized viewpoints that said, oh, these women are tortured, they suffer, it's painful. And although it is physically painful, it's important to recognize that this is a choice that um, a lot of these women make. So, um, yeah, that's- yeah, we got to stop being really ethnocentric with, oh, pain and torture and suffering when it's a choice that a lot of people make. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about it, like even like a Western tattoo, that that's painful. But nobody's like, oh, the pain and the suffering. Like they'll probably go like, ow, that hurt. But nobody's like, oh, so-and-so went through the pain and the yeah, suffering. It's never, it's never really questioned. The pain is always like, it's worth it because now you have this tattoo or like this mark on exactly. your body. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So another thing um, that can be considered a body modification is a lip plate. 
Um, and they've been present all over the world in the past. Uh, they're kind of like an ear gauge, but they're in the lip. Mm-hmm. And currently, the people most known for wearing lip plates are the Mercy and Surma people of Ethiopia. Uh, and these are particularly women that wear them. And often they'll take out the bottom few incisors in order to put the lip plate in. Um, and yeah, they they ex- gradually expand the hole with larger plates. And it's a societal expectation that these women have these lip plates. Um, and depending on the size of plate that they have depends on how many cattle that they're uh, they're given in marriage. Oh, that's so interesting. So like the bigger the lip plate. Yeah. So the bigger the lip plate, the more the more cattle, which is, um, I guess, a form of a dowry. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Another thing um, is scarification. So ritual scarification has been really common in a lot of times and places. Um, some people in Western culture even do it, but here it's considered more of like an extreme. Um, like I've definitely seen people not probably in real life, but like on the internet get scarification, but it's seen as like a very taboo and extreme thing here. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know anybody personally with scarification. Um, scarification, it's like scars. It's like a tattoo almost, but. Yeah, it's like a designer motif, but it's made mm-hmm. from scars. So there are a few ways it can be done. A few ways it can be done. Um, one of the ways is branding. So through burning the skin. Another really common way is cutting the skin. Mm-hmm. And you can actually add substances into scars to make a kind of tattoo-like effect. So you can add um, like a black substance to make it heal with a black mm-hmm. kind of hue uh, in order to look kind of like a tattoo. But they're they're interesting that they're three-dimensional because scars are three-dimensional. Um, and yeah, they're they're actually quite common a lot of times and places. Um, ritual tattoos are another thing that not everybody thinks of, especially with the commonality of uh, tattoos in the West. Um, tattoos have often been performed in the past with a uh, ritual purpose. So one of my favorite examples of this is in the Philippines. Uh, there's a traditional um, tattoo artist from the Kalingat tribe. Her name is Wang Odd, and she is, they think, about 103 years old but she doesn't have a birth certificate so they're not sure so interesting but she spends all her days tattooing she is the most renowned tattoo artist um, in the area and people come from all over the world to get a tattoo by her and to get to her village which is called uh, Buscalan I believe Um, you have to like climb a mountain, you have to be brought by a tour guide. It's really difficult to get there, but people come from all over to get tattooed by her. Um, so in order to tattoo, what she does is she attaches a thorn from a lemon or pomelo tree, um, to a bamboo stick. So it kind of looks like a hammer. Um, and then she taps the stick with the thorn into the skin to apply the ink, which is made from charcoal, water, and a little bit of sugarcane syrup, um, and just taps away. And honestly, I think that'd be pretty difficult because you'd have to be pretty consistent with your leverage of the of the hammer to not yeah. tap Absolutely. in the wrong place. I can imagine that being pretty painful as well for the person. Yeah, I can imagine as well. And um, 
traditionally these Klinga tattoos, um, they were they were in men signs of warriors, and you had to earn them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in women, they were signs of beauty. But these days, people just come from all over, from any culture, just to get these tattoos. Um, and one of the things that I found interesting is that in an interview, Wang Odd, Wang Odd said that tourists often go for like the prettier designs that are like they look nicer, uh, despite the ones uh, that might like not be as visually appealing, but they have more of a meaning that fits with the person getting the tattoo. So that's kind of a way that it's been like really commodified. Because mm-hmm. um, these tattoos are steeped in meaning. And then people are coming and being like, oh, that one's pretty. I want that one. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, you see that, I mean, anywhere with tattoos, right? Like Definitely. people get tattoos um, with like a family member's name or like a date. Um, mm-hmm. And then sometimes there's no meaning at all. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, cause, and I think that's increasing too, the no meaning at all. Because I know I have some friends with tattoos and I'm like, oh, like, why'd you decide to get that tattoo? And they're like, oh, I like it. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Like, I think in the past, um, and even there's still an expectation in the present that you got to get a tattoo. And it is, um, like, it has to have some in-depth meaning, mm-hmm. um, which isn't always the case. But uh, Wang Odd, for people she's tattooing, she can actually pick the place and, like, the location and the uh, depiction of the tattoo um, for people specifically, kind of like a curated type thing um which I think is a it is quite meaningful so yeah she's still going um to this day that's absolutely amazing I know right like 103 and she's still tattooing away yeah and her grandnieces um are in her tattooing practice with her so they've taken up tattooing um and yeah, it's it's still in the family, which is really, really cool and special. Mm-hmm, that's very special. Um, another type of ritual tattooing that people might not always think of as like a ritual tattooing, but there's a lot of anthropological meaning we can find in it are prison tattoos. Mm-hmm. So prison tattoos are often for group affiliation. Yeah. Um, and they're very popular, but they are contraband. So um, it's interesting because people undergo pain, often unsanitary conditions, and possible punishments in order to get these tattoos, which I think shows how meaningful they are in any sense. Yeah, they definitely take on a different meaning. Um, I know it can be, I watched a documentary and it was about um, a lot of times if like people know that they're going to jail or, um, or like scared of going to jail, they want a tattoo that like affiliates them with um a certain group as like protection when they're interesting so it's like it definitely is very meaningful yeah and there are also um tattoo styles that have actually come directly out of prison um especially some of the more minimalist styles they Mm -hmm. they have their roots directly in prison tattoos and they've become popular um in mainstream populations that aren't incarcerated um so that's really interesting as well. So moving away from tattoos, another um, example of ritual body modification is the lotus foot in China. Now, I think a lot of times when people think of the lotus foot and um, even myself, I, I think of like ancient China. Yeah. But 
although this has been practiced from the 10th century, so it's practiced for a long time, it didn't actually cease until the 1940s to 50s. So there are still women alive today that have lotus feet, which is, <laughs> yeah. I think that's kind of like, it's kind of like when you see something um, that kind of messes with your, like, thought of time. It's like, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so were born the same year. But, like, you you see them as different mm-hmm. in different time periods. Like, I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's, like, Martin Luther King Jr. and Anne Frank are born the same year. Um oh. So just as like a tangent but like kind of messes with your idea of time it was actually outlawed in 1912 the lotus footing mm-hmm. but it continued especially in the countryside until about the 50s um so- and at yeah at the time about a hundred percent of the upper class population would have had the lotus foot and up to 50 percent of um the more commoner type population would have had lotus foot so in order to actually bind the feet, they would have to break all the toes except the big toe. And then they bind it over with like cloth. And it it the women who have undergone it said it's extraordinarily painful. Um, and like some body modifications and unlike others, this is not usually a choice. This is usually something that is made for young girls to do. Um, because it's a sign of beauty and it was required for marriage in a lot of cases um, because little feet were the style Um, so it was very widespread and common so yeah those are some current body modification practices Um, but because anthropology studies people of the present and the past I'd like to take you back a little bit to uh, the past in which we can actually still see some forms of body modifications. Um, So archaeology and bioarchaeology can tell us a lot. Um, But the thing is, soft tissue doesn't usually preserve. Sometimes it does, though. Mm -hmm. So um, first, we're going to talk about some soft tissue examples. And this would be uh, like mummies. We've talked about mummies before on the show. And I think we're, we've talked about our good friend, Utsi the Iceman. We definitely have. How can you not? <laughs> I know. You got you to gotta throw back to Utsi once in a while. He is a joy to have on our show. Um, <laughs> um, so Utsi is known as the Iceman. He is an individual who died 5,300 years ago in the Alps, and he is naturally preserved through glacial mummification. So since his soft tissues are preserved, as we've mentioned before, we know a whole lot about him, uh, including a lot of his health problems. But one thing we know about Uchi is that he had 61 tattoos. Which I always find so creepy and, like, just so <laughs> interesting. I was like, he what had tattoos? <laughs> and it's funny because, like, a lot of people are like, oh, look at you modern kids with all these tattoos. And it's like, Uchi, 5,300 years yeah. ago. 61 tattoos. <laughs> yeah, don't tell, don't say it's a young people thing. <laughs> <laughs> so the tattoos on Uchi are pretty geometric. There are a lot of parallel lines and X's. And the way that his tattoos were made is charcoal rubbed into cuts. Um, they actually think that a lot of his tattoos were applied for medical treatment um, based on the placement that they're at, which is really interesting and a different type of ritual tattooing. So they've also found tattoos on other mummies in different times and places. Um, So, yeah, tattoos are ancient. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. they're not a new thing. The way that we do them has changed, but they're they're not new, and they have a lot of meaning in a lot of places and times. Now, believe it or not, you can actually tell some body modifications skeletally. So, we might have talked about this before. I think we briefed over it before, um, in maybe our biological profile osteobiography episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, think so. But just to go over that a little bit again, uh, one of the ways that uh, the body can be modified, and this is not necessarily an intentional skeletal modification, but it does have skeletal repercussions, is corsets. So corsets were worn in the Victorian era, um, I think up until the Edwardian era, uh, and some people wear them today. They are um, very stiff chest cages for lack of a better term that really tie in and make you have like a small waist so corsets can actually make your ribs curvy Mm -hmm. which is really interesting yeah another thing oh go ahead oh sorry i was gonna say repeated like if you repeatedly wear them oh yeah definitely it definitely it's not an overnight thing like if you wear it once it's not gonna be like oh no my ribs are (laughs) yeah (laughs) It's a repeated, and a lot of, like, I think we've mentioned before, things that manifest in the skeleton are not usually, the habitual markers are not one-time things. They're things that you do over and over and over again so that they make a mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another example of this is the pipe facet. So if you watch old movies with people with pipes, you might see, um, you might see them clutching a pipe in between their teeth. Um, and if you keep doing that and you have a preferential side for your pipe, uh, you're going to get kind of like uh, semicircular impressions in your teeth to hold the pipe. And yeah, you can see that a lot in um, the Industrial Revolution era skeletons, um, not only in men, some skeletons that have been estimated as women have these pipe facets. So it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that might hit close to home for some people, and this is something that we'll probably see in the future of bioarchaeology. It's called Halix valgus, and first I'll tell you what it is, and I'll tell you what it can be caused by. So it's effectively, if you have your big toe, your big toe heads outwards in a boomerang shape. So it's at the one of the joints between, I believe, one of your metatarsals, your first metatarsal and uh, some of the tarsals, um, which are foot bones. And it heads out in a boomerang shape. And this can be due to wearing high heels, (laughs) which is terrifying because a lot of people, for their job, for fun, wear high heels all the time. All, every Um, day? Oh, yeah, definitely. Some professions expect it. Um... And, yeah, it it puts a lot of pressure in a very small space. So, yeah, it's a little scary. It is. Yeah, we can see it. You can see it in the bioarchaeological record, and we're going to see it. Oh, yeah, Um, definitely. Yeah. yeah, So that's something to look out for. (laughs) Don't don't wear high heels every day if you can avoid it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And if we have any bioarchaeologists of the future listening to this as a historical podcast then uh take a look out for halix valgus (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, another thing that can be seen bioarchaeologically is tooth inlays. So the Mayans would often carve out little holes and put like little gems in their teeth. And honestly, that might sound a bit weird, but people do that today. Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Tooth modifications are around today. Like, what do they call them? The grill? Or... Yeah. 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 They're they're like they're a thing that's totally around today. Mm-hmm. And I mean, um, even some personal body modifications that we have today can be used in a forensic context, like right now. Like if Bob with his tattoo of a hot air balloon went missing and then they found a body that was very decayed but the hot air balloon tattoo was there they could they could look and be like oh you know what this is a personal identifier that could be bob Mm -hmm. so that's another way that body modifications can be used um through like forensic tattoo identification or other body modifications so yeah body modifications can seem really out there but um a lot of the times it's exactly the opposite. It's what is needed to fit into a certain time and place and culture. And it's also interesting to note that not only the type of body modification that you get uh, matters in a lot of circumstances, but where it is. Like, for example, uh, although tattoos are becoming increasingly common today, it's still not really common to get like a face tattoo. Yeah, exactly. It's still it's still more expected that it'll be like hidden for the most part. Yeah, I think people sometimes um, will be like, oh, I'm going to get this hidden or like, especially for facial piercings as well. Definitely. I know there's kind of like this idea that's like, oh, you have to be able to take that out yep. for a job or for whatnot. Yeah, or um, cover it up or mm-hmm. yeah. So even when body modifications are intentional, they're still um, like, there's still, I don't want to say stigma, but like. Oh, there, there's a definite there's taboo stigma, right? in some cases. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, they can either serve to unite you, divide you, or people can be indifferent about them. Mm-hmm. And that changes through time and place. And although we've seen lots of changes through time and place with body modifications, there are some things like tattoos um, that have endured throughout time, even if they've changed how they manifest. Um, and really, it's important to note that a lot of the body modifications that we do in the West would seem just as bizarre to somebody outside our culture as theirs do to us. And that comes back to being not being ethnocentric, um, uh, which is a huge thing in anthropology. We want to consider other cultures in light of their own culture, not in light of our predisposed um, ideas based on our own cultural experiences. Mm-hmm. So that's what I have to say about body modifications today. yeah hope you enjoyed our first show back Mm -hmm. it was super fun to be back talking to all you guys Mm -hmm. yeah so it it's it's really nice we're gonna we're gonna hopefully um you're gonna hopefully hear a lot more from us in the coming weeks as well Mm -hmm. and again Um, we'll be from home so hopefully it will be yeah, I'm sorry for any of the technical difficulties. I'm not sure how this will turn out. I hope it's okay. Um, a lot of podcasts do record from home, but I don't think that's as common with radio shows or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so that as always, um, let us know if there's any topics that you want us to cover anthropologically. 
I guarantee you that we can find an anthropological twist on anything that you want. Um, and yeah, we're going to do our non-human listener of the week shout out. So for today's shout out, we're going to shout out to my friend Leah's dog, Sadie. Um, Sadie is lovely and really adorable. So yeah. So this has been Katie and Iz, and you'll hear from Isabel soon. Don't worry. Um, but <laughs> yeah thanks for listening to our show and stay safe stay well and uh thanks bye guys